Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Welcome to my favorite time of the week. We're really thrilled to have you here, Josh, with us uh, in your role as uh, the UK country lead for LinkedIn and the VP for EMEA and LATAM. That's quite a long title. And I think the theme of uh, transparency, authenticity and compassion really fits with what uh, Ben and I took from fellow Professor Roger Steer, the three hums, humanity, humility and humor. And you bring all those. So it's lovely to have you on the series. So it's Josh, Tell us a bit about your current role and your journey into leadership. Sure, and thanks for having me on, I appreciate it. So as you said, my current role leading the business for LinkedIn in the UK, and I also lead what we refer to as our marketing solutions, which is our advertising business across Europe, Middle East and Africa and Latin America. And I've been at LinkedIn for about nine and a half years or so, so an antique in LinkedIn in LinkedIn terms. In terms of the core aspects of, those, of that role, I'd probably bake it into three buckets. So the first is team talent and culture. The second is members and the third is customers. And on the first, it's about, perhaps not surprisingly, but identifying, recruiting, retaining, upskilling, motivating, inspiring a brilliant team. Uh, the second is about ensuring that we are really delivering on our mission as a company to our members. So our mission is how do we make our members more productive and more successful? And the way that we do that is by helping them build their network to get a job and to stay informed, to understand what's going on in the industry in which they operate. And the third piece, very importantly, is customers. And that's about ensuring that we deliver customer value. And customer value means something very different to uh, our customers depending in which sectors they operate in so on the talent side it could be about recruiting people recruiting the very best talent it could be about understanding the sentiment of your organization helping you on your diversity and inclusion strategy and on the other side of the business it could be increasing the productivity of a sales team or driving a series of marketing qualified leads or upskilling your team and so i think the reason i love it so much is probably the variety of the role mm. yeah so so one thing that we, we we'd like to do is to learn about your, your sort of career journey as well um because i think you've had, had some uh, a really interesting journey and and some some interesting moments which are probably a little bit unusual um uh, sort of journey to leadership so could you tell us more about that so, so I was always desperate to work from a very, very young age. Wherever I could get work experience from the age of 10, 11, 12, I was doing it. And uh, I you know, was fortunate at school. I could get you know, not amazing, but decent grades. But I never enjoyed sort of formal study at school. And I went on to university. Perhaps it wasn't a path that I should have gone down in hindsight. But I ended up deciding to drop out about a year and a quarter after I joined, I was going to Leeds to do French and Italian. And I dropped out, I managed to get myself some work experience and ended up falling into TV production. And I'm not really sure at the time that I had a dream of working in TV production. Frankly, it was a job and I was desperate for any job, so I was willing to take it. I was lucky, I, I loved doing it. But after about two years, uh, for various reasons, I saw an opportunity and decided to quit that job in about 2002 and uh, start up an agency doing advertising and video games. And it was slightly bizarre at the time because I didn't know much about advertising, I didn't know much about video games, but I did recognize that there was an opportunity for the two to come together. And so I stole my brother's old bedroom at my parents' house. He'd moved out to me at the time. I think he's still a little little resentful, perhaps, of me doing that. Um, but I, I took his room, I started up a business, and really built it over three years, uh, going into video games publishers and helping to generate new revenue streams for them, uh, going into marketers to CMOs to help them understand how they can engage at the time with you know, 18 to 35 men and women. And mm. I built a business, slowly but surely, 
A few years later, I sold that to a New York-based startup called Massive, and then we sold Massive to Microsoft in May 2006. So at the moment, it's a bit of a deja vu for me. At my first time around was 2006 to 2007. Probably a conversation for another time, but a very different organization today to the one that it was back then. Um, and I then sort of left and I joined or had actually a brief hiatus in a company that I didn't enjoy. And then I joined Electronic Arts for three years, looking after their EMEA advertising relationships and very bizarrely looking after the relationships with the US sports leagues when it came to advertising, the NBA, the NHL, the NFL, about which I knew nothing, literally nothing. I mean, I was sort of the guy who was like going into the NFL. I was like, is this the one with the puck? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> um, and then an opportunity came up to join LinkedIn. And few reasons why I joined, an amazing set of people that I met in the interview process. It was a brilliant product that I found myself using every day without really realizing it at the time until I was reflecting on my usage during the interview process. And a huge potential, I and mean, it was super early days, I think 80 or 90 million members at the time. Today we're about 700 plus million. And I was sold from the onset. And I think culture and values actually perhaps didn't play a key role in my decision-making process at the time because I hadn't really considered culture and values. Uh, it really never surfaced to me as something important in business until I joined LinkedIn and uh, now firmly cemented in the business, in my values, and you know, almost 10 years later, I'm still here. Mm. And before, before Ben picks up with another thing, that's uh, been an amazing journey. And it really is a uh, indicative of many of the leaders that we have they don't have linear career journeys it isn't that that isn't the way it is it's, it oscillates you have highs and lows and you have transitions and successes and failures and things go on and, and it's so great to hear that and people who are listening to this so that they can realize that that it isn't the stages of life and all this kind of stuff it's whatever you seize and you learn from the highs and lows i i, I think what, what's your thoughts josh I completely agree with you. I think you know, some people do have a linear career path. There's obviously um, roles if you're a doctor or a nurse or a lawyer. Like it's it's a pretty set trajectory if you choose to follow it. But in so many instances today, one has the opportunity to experience a broad number of roles. I think there was a stat which was in the 1970s, people would have about two employers in their career and Generation Y would have about 13 employers. And for me, that variety has been what's kept it interesting and when I recruit people today I often look for people with a variety of different experiences in different sectors. We've over the last couple of years in our advertising business at LinkedIn uh, moved from a uh, experience-based interview model to a competency-based interview model recognizing that if we can bring people in from different sectors from different industries they bring a different set of experiences and that diversity is ultimately good for our business and good for our customers. Mm-hmm. And you took quite a lot of risk on along the way. Um, so dropping out, dropping out of university, starting your own business, setting up an office in your brother's room, <laughs> loads of little moments where you you made really important risky decisions. How, how did you actually sort of go about that? And, and what did um, what did your family say? Uh, interesting one. So some of them interesting. Some of them felt like risky decisions at the time, and some of them didn't. So the dropping out of university. Frankly, I mean, clearly it was a decision I made, mm. but uh, my sort of mental, <clears throat> excuse me, my mental health was not in the best of places at the time. Uh, really struggling, uh, to, struggling to come to terms with who I was, my sexuality, and I think that certainly played a role. And I also had like six hours of lectures a week, and I'm terrible with that time on my mind. I, I need to sort of stay occupied as much as possible, and so the combination of all of those factors led me to drop out. And I remember. I was in my room at university and I was clearly not in a good state and a friend of mine walked in and just looked at me and said, Josh, I think it's time to go home. And I literally went to the, I packed my bag, went to the station and never, never returned. Mm. And I showed up at my parents' door and frankly, they weren't enormously surprised. My brother had dropped out, I dropped out, my parents didn't go, uh, my grandparents didn't go. Uh, I think my sister was the only one in the family that finished university. And 
they could see that I wasn't in the sort of best of states, but they were mm. really clear. They said, look, you've got six to eight weeks to sort of get yourself together. We'll support you, we'll help you. And whatever job it is, after six to eight weeks, you need to go and earn some money. Um, and I, I appreciated their candor, but it was also something I knew I was going to do. I was always desperate to work. So mm. again, I, it was a decision, but I'm not sure that I was in the right state of mind to make a structured decision about leaving university at the time. Setting up my business was certainly a very conscious decision. I was mm. pretty young. I it was fortunate that I was still living at home. I appreciate there's a lot of people who don't have that luxury. I'm always uh, inspired and amazed by people who set up businesses with no support infrastructure around them. I find that incredible and good on them for doing it. I did have a bit of a safety blanket of the fact that I was still living at home. Um, but it felt like the right thing to do. It was a you know, intelligent risk. We, we talk about intelligent risks at LinkedIn all of, at, at mm. the time. And I didn't have a huge amount to lose. I saw it as an opportunity. Worst case scenario, I thought I would do this for a year, shut it down, and then go and try and find a job elsewhere. And yeah. fortunately, it was uh, moderately successful. Yeah, wasn't it? Um, I think it was Nelson Mandela said, I either, I either learn or I succeed. Uh, <laughs> that, that way. I, just jumping back and, and fascinated by entrepreneurs and people who start up tech companies and things. And I, I work with those kind of people and they're very interesting. But, but going back to university, um, it, it is coming out, came out on one of the LinkedIn news feeds um, <clears throat> about the fact that many tech companies and many firms now are saying we don't need our graduates to have a degree from university. We, we want them to have those competencies, you're saying. And I think a lot of people go not sure why but they think they have to do that but it's probably not the right thing for them to do in life's experiences uh personally you know i went to the army at 18 didn't go to university but then did my mba my degree my ma later so so i think people should do it when it's the right thing for them and i i'd imagine universities are feeling there's an existential threat to them at the moment covid19 and i mean look at linkedin i mean you're almost like a university within the organization you're taking on many in my industry of leadership and coaching and development it's all being provided by you so actually in some ways universities i think are under some great threat unless they change they'll die i think there is ultimately it's a choice by the individual depending on where they are in their, their life and actually with the rate of unemployment as it stands today and potentially increasing over the next six months i think a lot of people are Sort of seeing a formal education, be it an MBA or university, as the alternative path for the next few years. But there are a lot of people who go to university who have an amazing experience. They learn a new subject, they also find themselves. It's often the first time they've been away from home. And I think that's enormously valuable. But at the same time, it wasn't the path that I chose. When I joined LinkedIn actually in 2011, I don't know how I got in because all of our job specs said that you have to have a university degree at the time. And I felt myself, there's just no way I could keep that on our um, specs. And so we quickly either removed it or said university degree and or equivalent experience. And at least in the UK, we haven't insisted on it since. I think some companies use it as a filtering mechanism but at the same time I think if people have really relevant experience then there's no need to necessarily have a to force people to have a degree to apply for a job it seems crazy yeah and so so when you were sort of starting out what piece of advice um do you wish you had when you were, when you were first sort of starting out there's a I mean a whole load of advice I wish I had because um uh, there were a load of things I didn't know at the time. I was—I remember being morti completely mortified one day. I had flown to New York to pitch a brand uh, to be featured, an agency actually who um, represented a brand to be featured in a video game. And I think I was 21 or 22. And I walked into their sort of big New York office and I did my pitch and really enthusiastic. And at the end, they said to me, oh, the price that you've quoted us, is it net or gross of agency fees? And I literally froze. I had no idea what they were talking about. And in hindsight, I'm mortified, but it was a great learning experience for me. And trust me, I never made that mistake, mistake again. But uh, I think the, yeah, there's a great Oscar Wilde quote, which is, I think it's, be yourself, everyone else is taken. And that 
really struck me as advice to take on board. Uh, you you have to you may not have confidence initially. I think we all live with imposter syndrome. I certainly do, but over time you build a little bit more confidence and you realize that actually being yourself uh, surfacing authenticity vulnerability is a character or a leadership strength i would say there's mm. still quite a few people who see vulnerability as a weakness and i increasingly see it as an amazing strength and that vulnerability and authenticity is what ultimately builds fellowship and trust with others. I think it's really difficult to trust somebody if mm. you don't feel they're being authentic or vulnerable with you. And when it comes to vulnerability, I remember speaking to a senior leader one time about imposter syndrome. And I, at the time, I didn't quite know what it was called, what it was. I just knew I felt this way. And they described to me the way they felt. And they were leading a very large organization. And I just remember thinking, thank God somebody not the only one and subsequently you speak to most senior leaders and they have some degree of imposter syndrome yeah uh, it's, it's very interesting i'm reminded of a cfo uh, of a very large supermarket chain who's now a ceo of an international business and doing incredibly well and and when coaching her she said jonathan i'm afraid they'll find me out i said what do you mean she said when i was at university i worked behind the bar i i couldn't add up you know four packets of crisps and three packs of lager and I'd go uh, sort of £10.50 and get and she said and I'm now the CFO of this huge supermarket and I said that's not what's required we need you as a leader um in that journey that oscillating journey and those risk moments that Ben spoke about what would you describe as some of the darkest moments uh, or darkest moment and and what you learned from it and also a proudest moment and what you learned from it so the darkest moment, and there's different levels of darkest moment, let's say. Uh, I think the, the first 22 years of my life I spent in the closet, and so without doubt, they were the darkest moments. I mean, you, uh, you are uncomfortable building relationships with friends, with family members. You are reading in the papers that sort of, um, homosexuality equals dirty or wrong or whatever it was in the in the 1980s. I think the Thatcher government described it at the time as pretended family relationships. And you don't see anyone that looks and feels like you in business at the time, other than sort of on the television and entertainment. And I, you really question who you are. And frankly, at some points, you question whether you want to be around at all. And they were certainly some of the darkest moments and you know, combined with panic attacks and hyperventilating and everything else that can often come with that it's deeply unpleasant on the flip side when I finally came out in at work and you know, which was a couple of years after I came out to family and friends I suddenly saw all of these amazing benefits that I hadn't anticipated I think I became a more compassionate leader. I managed to build stronger, more trusting relationships with colleagues, with clients. I was enjoying myself a hell of a lot more. I sort of uh, had a better understanding of self and all of, and, I, and I ultimately I became more productive. I wasn't spending so much of my energy and time hiding who I was. And every time I had a conversation before that, there was a lens that I used to use, a filter that I used to use. And as I said, I dropped out of university, but the, so I never took my finals, but the only way I can describe the anxiety is like permanently having your finals tomorrow morning. And then when you've finally been through that process, you've taken your finals, you've got a good result and you can get on with the rest of your life. And so they were certainly the, the darkest moments. And the proudest moments, I would say the proudest moments, one is uh, selling the business to this New York-based company, Massive Incorporated at the time. I sort of put a lot into three years of building it. And as I said, it wasn't a, an incredible success. It wasn't a failure. It was a moderate success. And I was pleased that I had an asset that I could that I could sell. Uh, bless you, Jonathan. Um, and so that was certainly one of the proudest moments. And I would say there's a whole series of um, micro moments that I'm particularly proud of. And this may sound really strange, but they're actually when people leave the business at LinkedIn. And I will give you a little bit of context to that. The, when you first join LinkedIn, your first day on the job 
uh, when you're onboarding session and somebody from HR comes and says, sees you and says, I know you're going to leave the business. They say, uh, whether it's 18 months, two years, three years, four years, we know you're going to leave. Like, we'd be naive to think that you're not going to leave. We've got plenty of data on the speed at which people leave companies to know that people are going to leave. But our goal is that when you do leave, you're able to secure a role that perhaps you otherwise wouldn't have been able to secure had you not come through LinkedIn's doors. And when you're ready to leave, let's have that conversation and we will help you find a brilliant job. And there are many times over the years, over the last decade or so, where people have come to tell me that they are leaving and they have secured themselves the most incredible jobs in some of the best companies around the world. And there is, and don't get me wrong, I love the fact when people get promoted internally or take on new projects, roles and responsibilities, but there's something about somebody leaving and being able to secure this amazing role that gives you an incredible sense of pride as well. Great. Definitely, definitely. We've got um, a, a question that's come up on, on the feed. And yeah, anyone that's listening, please like, comment and share and ask questions to Josh. It'd be great to, 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 to hear from you. Um, so this is from James Robinson. Sorry, Josh, we've cut your face out there for a moment. Yeah, um, this is talking about unconscious bias and how you overcome it during um, hiring decisions. Um, so it'd be great to, sort of know, to, to, to learn how, how you do that, Josh. Sure. Um, there are a whole series, and by the way, this is uh, there's unconscious bias and there is explicit bias, and some people have one or the other, or some people have both. And there's a series of ways where you can try and remove some bias in the interview process. But I think before you do that, you have to go through a process of unlocking what biases you hold. And all of us hold some form of bias from childhood. And we may not realize it, but it's just built into our DNA from our upbringing. And so there's a there's a series of programs that one should do around unconscious bias. During the interview process specifically, and one person who I would call out here is there's a lady called Sally Keane, who's a, a leader in our UK business. Ben, I know you're, you're nodding there. She is. Yeah, she's great. She's, an unbelievably good leader, like one of the best leaders I've come across. A level of compassion that I've never seen in anyone else, and she has a level of resilience that I've also never seen in anyone else. And about 18 months ago, she realized that we didn't have a particularly uh, diverse team in our UK LMS business. When it came to race and ethnicity specifically, we did have 50-50 when it came to when it came to gender. And some of the steps that we took to overcome that were to move from a uh, experience-based interview model to a competency-based interview, interview model is uh, super important uh, to ensure that when we're looking for people, we're not looking for people just from our immediate networks. We're looking at people from other sectors, other industries, making sure that you have a diverse hiring panel. I'm very conscious that there's three white men sitting in front of the screen at the moment. There's something we not strive to have in, in our hiring panels. We want a diverse um a diverse interview panel and a diverse slate as well. And as you go through that process, as you've uh, educated yourself on some of the biases that could exist, as you have moved to a competency-based model, as you uh, try and attract people from different sectors, different industries, different backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, you uh, bias starts to become eliminated. And it's not going to happen overnight. This is the journey that people go on over an extended period of time and credit to Sally over the last 18 months she got her entire team on board and has fundamentally changed the diversity in that part of the business. Yeah she's fantastic Sally's, Sally's brilliant um, absolutely love her um, so so one of the things that, that that it's interesting about successful people they often have particular sort of habits that make them sort of successful and, and we, we like to sort of split that out into sort of three areas so we can learn from you Josh it, some of the things that have made you successful over time so um, firstly with, within being healthy it's extremely important at the moment um, with the COVID crisis both mentally and physically how do you maintain your your, your health? So at the beginning of the crisis I, I mean, mental health has been a problem in the workforce for years. It's a challenge in society, but specifically in the workforce. I think about 25% of the workforce will experience some form of mental health challenge. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm no different. I just sort of just spoke briefly about some of the mental health challenges that I had when I was when I was younger. 
at the beginning of the COVID crisis, I was trying to pivot the team from working in the office to working remotely. There was a lot of uncertainty around how one could catch the virus at the time. So people were understandably anxious and no one knew what the future would hold. And in those first two weeks, I found myself sitting at my desk in front of my screen for about 17 to 18 hours a day during the week and most of the weekend as well. And after two weeks, I was physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted. And I was nowhere near as productive as I could have been because I'd been eating really badly. My back was wrecking. Mm. Um, I hadn't been doing any exercise. And I was trying to be lively and jovial and sort of to the degree I could energetic for my team and speaking to them about the challenges that they were facing, but was feeling, frankly, pretty crappy myself. Mm. And I realized then that if this was to continue, I would be unable to do my job and i made a couple of very quick decisions that day firstly i decided to start exercising again and so now i've been doing exercise i actually find it easier to do it five to six days a week i carve out an hour and that can be during the middle of the day the morning whenever it is i clear my schedule i put also buffer time before and after a lot of the other meetings that i have to go for a walk or get some fresh air and Uh, started eating healthily as well and the combination of the two made a massive massive difference Mm. to to my working life and my mental health at the time and we just did a survey in the UK business at LinkedIn we surveyed about 250 uh, C-level executives and companies with north of a thousand people in them and not surprisingly about 60% of them said uh, this in the most difficult experience of their professional careers 75% were concerned about not having all of the answers and about 40% said that they often question their ability to lead Mm -hmm. and I have no doubt that the sort of mental health of these individuals and others um, plays a prominent role in some of this sort of angst that people are feeling sort of navigating through the pandemic it's the most challenging professional experience and economic experience that any of us will at least hopefully ever have to live live through and so just making sure you get regular exercise that you uh, eat healthily and most importantly to the degree you can if you have something on your mind to speak to someone else about it is critically important mm. yeah definitely i found um one of the things is is your day is no longer sort of broken up with with moments to yourself so like the commute to work or, or the drive to the station or whatever like that there's no longer those little sort of decompression moments that and you really need to carve carve them out because because you're just constantly on um, and sort of mission creep so exactly. so so wealthy so um obviously there's lots of people who are going to be in in some pretty dire straits at the moment with with um, with work coming off furloughs um etc is there any piece of advice that you've got about money or give about money regularly so interesting i feel healthy and wealthy are always like a bit like beauty there in the eyes of the beholder <laughs> relative um the only piece of advice i was ever given and it's really simple and i appreciate it as a luxury in many respects is mm. live within your means and i have always done my very best to ensure that my outgoings were um, less than my incomings and at the same time I recognize that that is a luxurious position to be in if you can Mm. it is a particularly difficult environment at the moment at the moment so many people being furloughed so many people being made redundant or potentially more being made redundant over the next over the next couple of months we saw in our own hiring data at the peak of the crisis it was down about 50 percent it's now still negative six percent the hiring rate in the uk so again a luxurious position to be in if you can but it was drummed into me from a really early age and i've tried to live by that ever since yeah and and just finally on 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 these habits is there a, a piece of wisdom that you strive to live your your life by Surround yourself by people far smarter than you. Um, I think that's, that's probably the best piece of advice I was ever given. Actually, it's probably one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made as well. In the, I remember in 2001, um, I was a year into my sort of first ever job and I was given the opportunity to hire a couple of people onto my team. And it was the first mm. time 
I was ever going to be a manager. And I remember interviewing a load of candidates and one of them, I just thought, you are brilliant. You are wickedly smart and uh, you could definitely do this job. And I made the terrible decision not to hire them. And I think I made the terrible decision not to hire them in hindsight because I was nervous about how smart they were and they would outshine me and they would outshine others on the team. And it was definitely the biggest sort of mistake I've made. And uh, to date, or ever since then, I've tried to subscribe to the philosophy of hire people much, much smarter than you. Surround yourself by them. Uh, Satya Nadella over at Microsoft has embraced, uh, I think it's Carol Dweck's philosophy around the growth mindset and has pivoted Microsoft over the last few years from a what he would call a know-it-all organization to a learn-it-all organization. And the idea of just surrounding yourself with brilliant people means that you can continue learning and developing yourself. Mm. That is such a good point. I really want to build on that. And I'll pick up if we could put Rhonda's question up in a moment. Mm. Uh, someone said to me, surround yourself with an army of giants. People are metaphorically <laughs> taller than you in their specialist area. And you'll never work a day in your life if you're the leader of them. Um, because they'll all be thriving to, to do well and, and have it. And, and I think the other thing to pick up on is gardeners' intelligences. There's, uh, people used to hire for IQ. But then that only accounts for 6% of people's performance in job, we know from research. Then they said EQ, that's the big thing. That was in the 90s, EQ, emotional. Stuff. But that's only 30% of people's uh, success in, in, in performing in a job. And the, the other areas are part of my research around what makes inspiring leaders. But can we just pick up uh, Rhonda's, uh, Rhonda's question? Absolutely. There we go. Can you talk more about the biggest challenges to an inclusive work environment in EMEA versus LATAM versus America? Similarities and differences? I can try uh, to, the degree, to the degree that I uh, have a perspective on it. So I've worked across EMEA, I've worked across LATAM. I, at EA, I had a team in North America, but I wasn't as close to some of the sort of challenges at the time in America. Obviously, I'm mean, reading the news at the moment. There's clearly a major challenge around race in, and race and ethnicity in North America. But if I look at the markets in which I currently operate in, I think one of the biggest challenges in Latin America and our team specifically are in um, Sao Paulo in Brazil is the sort of delta between um, sort of uh, Latinx professionals and Latinx black professionals. And about 53, 54% of the population of uh, Brazil and specifically Sao Paulo is black, but only a tiny percentage of the professional workforce. And there's sort of systemic inequality when it comes to education, when it comes to language uh, as well, specifically if you need to, if you need to learn English uh, to, to work in sort of some of these organizations. And so I think that is without doubt one of the biggest challenges that we face that we're trying to overcome is how do we have a more uh, how do we have a workforce in Brazil that's more representative of the broader population? And there's a series of programs that we have in place to try and do that. And we often talk about diversity and inclusion as uh, something which is generic and consistent across all of these different markets. The reality is that diversity and inclusion in uh, France is materially different to diversity and inclusion in Dubai or in Poland or uh, the UK. So you really need to understand what are the challenges for an individual market. I knew many years ago that there was one consistent, one common challenge that we faced across EMEA within our advertising business, and that was about gender. We had a complete imbalance uh, when it came to gender, uh, many more senior men than we did women. And we set ourselves a challenge about five and a half, six years ago that we wanted to get to 50-50. It was a goal we set ourselves. We didn't know exactly how long it would take us to get there because we didn't want to disadvantage anybody in the business at the time. But we knew that it was important to get there. We knew that it would be good for our business to get there. And we built a whole series of programs from unconscious bias training, diverse interview panels, diverse interview slates. Uh, we set expectations actually at the time with finance that we may hire slower uh, to have more diverse candidates come in. The reality is we've hired at a faster clip than we ever had done in the past. And what I've just shared alongside a whole series of other programs, I think I actually may have done a 
publishing post, a blog post on it about uh, three years or so ago. So I can surface that again with all of the steps that we took. And it took about four and a half, five years, but we managed to get to 50-50 at every level of seniority when it came to gender. We still have a long way to go on race and ethnicity, and we're just starting to put goals in place for that as well. That's, that's excellent. And we had a couple of points that came up there. Catherine Bodino, um, and also surround yourself with people with positive energy. You know, I think someone once said you have for knowledge, skills and attitude, but the key is attitude. You can you can develop knowledge and skills, but if their attitude is bad, it's it's never going to get better. And then Jane, I, I'm not quite sure how I'm pronouncing it. Jane Pham. Uh, there's a huge issue around race and then ethnicity in EMEA as well. Here in America, police are armed. That's a massive oversimplification, of course. Just wanted to provide that perspective as an American formerly in EMEA. So yeah, thank you. Um, perhaps the next question would be um, your, your view about what makes a good leader and what, how would you spot a successful team as well? So the leader and the team. Perhaps talk to us a bit about your view about the qualities of a, of a good leader and a, and a great team. So I, I think about this in two ways. Uh, one is the characteristics of a good leader. And frankly, I think these are the characteristics of a good professional, but specifically a good, a good leader. And they're the qualities that I look for when hiring. The first, and you mentioned some of them before, the first is intellectual curiosity. Um, is somebody like, genuinely curious? Do they have this learn-it-all uh, philosophy in life? The second is emotional intelligence. We've noticed that uh, on LinkedIn Learning, actually, a lot of people have pivoted to soft skills. It used to be hard skills. Soft skills are now more important than ever before. So uh, um, intellectual curiosity, emotional intelligence, resilience. I think arguably that's never been more important than the climate in which we're currently working. Uh, the next one is passion, and perhaps that goes to the person that referenced positive energy, Catherine, who referenced positive energy before. For me, my interpretation of that is passion. And that doesn't necessarily mean passionate about the work you're currently doing today. Like, Are you passionate about something in your life? Do you have a pastime or a hobby or something that you are massively passionate about that you want to learn more about? And finally, uh, humor. And when I say humor, it doesn't mean you have to be hilarious, but just somebody who doesn't take themselves too seriously, who has a lightness of spirit. And they are underpinned, all of those, I would say, are underpinned by what I mentioned at the top, authenticity, vulnerability and compassion. So those are the characteristics that I look for in terms of the skills that I think somebody or the behaviours that I think good leaders need to demonstrate, especially in the current climate. The first is visibility. Uh, we've, uh, I think one of the few positives to come out of the pandemic is that leaders feel like they're much closer to their teams, even though they're not in close proximity. They're spending more time speaking to and communicating with their teams, their customers, their key stakeholders, government, media. So visibility is really important. And I appreciate I'm biased on this, but we've seen you know, so many executives using LinkedIn to amplify their voice during the pandemic, knowing that they can reach so many people in the process. The second one is lead with transparency and authenticity and compassion. And the third one is to communicate clearly and regularly. And that's never been more important than it is today. And importantly, to communicate clearly and regularly with facts. And I yeah. say with facts because in the early stages of the pandemic, there was a lot of uncertainty and people were communicating, um, stating things as facts that were not necessarily facts at the time. And so communicating clearly and regularly with facts is critically important. Yeah, that's, that's really well put, actually. And um, what about successful teams? When you've been in a successful team, what, what made that team specifically successful, Josh? Um, clarity of vision. Is everybody aligned around the same goals? Uh, do you have a common purpose? I think purpose is critically important. When I think about our uh, mission and vision at LinkedIn, the entire company is rallied around a common purpose. So clarity of vision, a common purpose, um, no ego. I think uh, there's certainly cases where ego can be beneficial, but I think if you're operating as a team, you ideally want to eliminate ego and you want to be working as one cohesive unit, so collaboration. And again, people who are passionate and want to learn, I think they're the characteristics, in my view, that have made some of the the best teams over the years. And again, likewise, as I said before about humor, people who don't take themselves too seriously. 
Good. We're now on um, which leader has inspired you? Uh, okay. Excellent. Excellent. So, um, yeah, one of one of the things we wanted to know, know about was was how the uh, whole so COVID crisis had had, had um, affected you you personally, and, and and anything you sort of learnt from from the experience. I I'm in a very privileged position, so I appreciate that. COVID has impacted people in very different ways. And I've been fortunate, I've had it relatively easy. You know, I have outdoor space, which is a huge advantage. Um, in the early days, I was uh, delivering care packages at my parents' door. My brother had COVID for about six weeks, so I was delivering food packages to his door. So there were certainly responsibilities that we had, but in the scheme of things, it was I've had it relatively easy. Um, so I, it's difficult for me to share best practice because I appreciate others are in very, very different and obviously more vulnerable than one night. Yeah. And really taking on from, from Ben's question about the impact on you of COVID, um, what's your view uh, and maybe some research uh, or anything you've picked up within LinkedIn because it has such an incredible ability to gather information that this the impact of COVID on the way people lead and the cultures of organization now and going forward. We were talking about this before, that this is going to go on for some time. So, so what's been your view on the impact and, and what will our world continue to be like or adapt to? It depends on the time frame that you look at. Um, there's been a lot of uh, commentary around the fact that the world of work is materially changed forever. And I personally don't subscribe to that theory. I think that uh, employees will get perhaps a greater degree of flexibility than they have in the past. But I can foresee an environment in a couple of years time where perhaps people who used to go into the office five days a week, maybe work from home one, perhaps two days a week. But in the scheme of things, we have relatively short memories about this sort of stuff. And I think that once a vaccine is around, hopefully once COVID has disappeared from the world, even if it's two, three years time, that life will return. In an ideal world, we build back better. We've heard that phrase used quite a lot around the world at the moment. I think there's certainly opportunities for us to improve remote working, to improve flexibility, and that's going to do wonders for diversity and inclusion, especially people who are out on parental leave who struggle to make it their way back into the workforce for various reasons. But I don't anticipate that it's going to be materially different from a flexible working perspective, other than a little bit more flexibility than, than people have today. I think one thing COVID has reinforced is the necessity of focus. Um, you know, we have this framework at LinkedIn that we refer to as focus. It's actually FCS. And the, the F of focus is fewer things done better. And COVID has forced everyone to be super focused on what's important and what's really going to move the needle in their business. The C of focus is communicating the right information to the right people at the right time. And that goes back to what I referred to earlier about communicating uh, clearly and regularly. And the S in focus is the speed and quality of decision making. There is a whole series of decisions that we've had to make pretty quickly without perfect information. And I think leaders have got arguably more comfortable uh, making decisions in the based on gut in the absence of perfect knowledge because perfect knowledge in this environment simply doesn't exist. Brilliant, I love it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I was just about to ask you what your your tips for leading during during crisis and change, and I think think that probably that probably answers that that question um, that pr question pretty well. Um, so, so maybe I would pick up on the next one then what mistakes do you see people making during this crisis and and how could people listening avoid those kind of mistakes specifically during the crisis and any crisis not just this one but just when 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 the pressure's on when the pressure's on you know, people people often have a tendency to panic and so to the degree that you can uh, do your utmost to remain calm we spoke about mental health and physical health. I think in any crisis, I was always struck on the airplane when they put out the announcement around masks and they tell you to put the mask on yourself 
before you put it on your kid or your elderly relative sitting next to you. And I was always confused. I was like, well, shouldn't you look after them? And it took me a while to process the fact that if you're not looking after yourself, if you can't breathe, then you have no ability to help those around you. And so uh, being a little bit selfish in that environment, uh, making sure that you look after your physical, your mental well-being, I would argue is probably the most important of, of, of anything during the crisis. And again, when we went back to our team to give them uh, guidance at the beginning of COVID, because people wanted to understand what the priorities were, we were really clear with them. We were like, number one priority, your physical and mental well-health of you, uh, and mental well-being of, for you and your family. If you have time, customer engagement. If you have time, learning and development in that order. And so giving people clarity of focus, but making sure that they prioritize what really matters is, in my view, the most important thing. Yeah, definitely. So we've had had a few comments on 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 the feed. Just would, would like to sort of bring those in. Um, and we've only got a, a, a short time left. So if anybody's got any questions they want to ask Josh um, before we wrap up, um, you better do it soon. Otherwise, we'll be gone. So um, a couple of questions. So, so Don McIntyre just. Um, commented on on leadership qualities Josh spoke about and feels that EQ is so often underrated and, and in his opinion the most important quality um, I don't know if you've got any thoughts about that about that yeah I, I agree I think I, emotional intelligence and intellectual curiosity a combination of the two I would say are critically critically important but some of the best leaders I've ever come across have incredibly good emotional intelligence and that's really what gets cut through with their teams yeah yeah thanks don and um just just one i think you covered quite quite this quite well before but we've had a, another question just looking at about qualities like intellectual curiosity and humor in an applicant but in a global environment any suggestions to avoid the unconscious bias i know you you, you pulled out a few few examples on that Sure, which is very briefly, when assessing applicants, to the degree that you can make them blind, and um, what I mean by blind is, like, don't have their faces on. Um, if you can, remove their education as well. That's not always possible because of the structure of the community. And don't discount somebody just because there is a mistake in their CV. A lot of people struggle to write perfect CVs. It doesn't mean that they could not be brilliant for that role. But I would say, to the, if you can, have sort of blind screening on the CVs. Yeah, there's there's so many um, there's so many problems with with with, with the process of, uh, of of hiring people that that discount people, um, filter them out early uh, through that they go to the wrong university or they they don't come from from the right right schools, um, and and I know that we we've done a lot of thought about about that in LinkedIn uh, about just making our processes better in in that way, um, but it's yeah. been been something that this year has really sort of highlighted. Um, with with everything that's happened this year and, and that one just to pick up on the point that you and josh are talking about you know there's that lovely example of how orchestras do um uh orchestra applicants play behind a screen so a bit like um the voice so you don't know who they are and so you're not going to judge them for what they look like their uh, any of their qualities um and and, and that is fair and, and also like how interesting it is when you change James to Janice uh, in the same CV and people are harder on them than they would be if it was a, a bloke who, who had some qualities and behaved in a certain way. That's that's good. That shows assertiveness. And then for a woman, it, oh, she's far too pushy. Can't have that. It's, it's yeah. still there, isn't it? You've got to work on it. Absolutely. And it, it was fascinating, actually, about the orchestra example that you shared. And I think there's a great article in The Guardian from several years ago that describes it is the first step was they put people behind the screen and orchestras were massively skewed male for years. And the first step they did was they put people behind the screen, but they still weren't getting an equal balance of men and women. And then what they asked the women to do was remove their shoes when they walked into the audition because a lot of women were walking in with high heels and uh, even subconsciously or unconsciously, people could hear the noise and they realized there was a woman playing the orchestra behind the screen. So when they removed their shoes, suddenly it became more balanced men and women. So there's these small changes that you don't even process at the mm. time that are leading to such explicit bias. Yeah, wow. <laughs> that's, that's such a good example. With, 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 um, with the whole Black Lives Matter movement um, this year and, and 
were you surprised actually as an organization which which sort of prides itself on 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 being a bit more forward thinking and being um uh looking at talent and diversity and inclusion as an important factor were you surprised that actually we still had so much work to do um within within um particularly the, the uk i wasn't surprised that we still had a lot of work to do i over the last sort of nine twelve months i've certainly been on a um process of education let's say learning sort of more around sort of bias as it relates to ethnicity and race specifically and i dug into this a bit over the last couple of years but not to the same degree that i have over the last 12 months and so as i was going through that process and frankly walking in the office and looking around i realized that we had a lot of work to do mm. and if there is any good to come out of this um it's uh, it's the fact that dni has move further up the agenda and if you speak to any of the chros that we work with at linkedin they will tell you and ceos will tell you as well that dni is their number one priority at the moment and mm. under horrendous circumstances that would cause but again sort of one um one piece of good hopefully come off uh, such horrible horrible circumstances yeah definitely definitely so we're, we're going to be wrapping up now really appreciate you giving us so much time josh it's been been an absolute pleasure um and uh and and i've really appreciated you um I, over the years i've come to you a number of times for advice and you've always been been brilliant so this has been great to interview you what a couple of last questions what would you like your legacy to be <laughs> uh, probably a a good husband friend son um that's probably the first one and then as it relates to work uh hopefully somebody who was generous with their time that helped unlock the potential of others that would be a nice legacy in my opinion yeah yeah definitely and finally a, a book recommendation something that's either important to you or, or just something you picked up in lockdown that can be a bit of a diversion there's two books. One is a brilliant book by Reid Hoffman called The Alliance, which is about managing talent in the digital age and mm. is a really worthwhile read. It gives you lots of sort of practical tips on how to lead people. Uh, the book that has had the most profound impact on me has nothing to do with work. There is a wonderful book called A Little Life by an author called Hanya Yamagahara. And it is arguably one of the most difficult books that I've ever read. It's about... Um, it's about a, a group of friends growing up in New York after college. And as I said, it's it's just a brilliant, it's sort of devastating, but brilliant read. And I would encourage everyone to read it. Fantastic. Um, thanks for everyone that has listened. And Josh, again, thank you. It's been, been, been great. Thank you for the invite. I appreciate it. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, Get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.